And we're finishing up our sermon series on the church mission statement, which really isn't the church mission statement. Let's be honest, it's the mission of the church universal. It's the mission of Christians everywhere. It's God's mission statement. Uh, We've packaged it, though, in an easy-to-remember format that we're all about Jesus, and the ALL stands for Adore, Learn, and Love. And we have this sentence that really helped you encapsulate what it means to be a Christian, that we adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we can love like Jesus. Any English teachers in the room, teach your kids to write that five-paragraph essay with the three points in the middle, right? And you go to seminary, and they teach you to do a three-point outline with some kind of catchy way to remember the three points, whether it's alliterated or it spells out a word. So here we go. And uh, with that, I'll let you know there's four points to this, (laughs) this sermon. We're going to define the statement, what it means to love like Jesus, why it's significant. We really wrap those first two points up into one point. Defining a statement or defining your thesis statement in a paper or an essay or a sermon is supposed to grab the attention of your readers or your hearers. So we'll convince you of why this is significant. We'll define the stumbling blocks, what will get in the way of loving like Jesus, and then what is the solution and strategy? What will I send you without the door to go put this into action? By the way, you can use this outline in your private study. It's really how you ought to study the Bible. You know, what is the point? What's the main point? What is God teaching me here? What is the significance of it? How will man's fallen condition get in the way of this happening? And what is God's uh, solution here? So be your own pastor as you read the Bible. Prepare as you read the Bible as if you're going to be called upon to teach to someone else and you will study your Bible uh, with more purpose, and you will glean more from it, and it will work on your heart. So, I'm a teacher at heart, love, love to teach. I'm excited about what I have learned this week, preparing the message. I want to teach it to you, to come share, to point you to Jesus. Hey, look, look what I found here means as a preacher sometimes you'll have to point people to things that are hard to accept. Hard to accept. And yet, my job as preacher is just to point you to the truth, point to it in love, convince, make a convincing argument from the Scriptures that you ought to buy into this, and then let the Holy Spirit do the rest. So... I'm also hoping the mission statement will give you a practical way to evangelize, to explain your faith to others. You can remember A-L-L. I'm all about Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I'm supposed to adore Jesus. problem is I don't. Humanity was made by God to worship and adore God, to be in relationship with God, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And yet, because of our fallenness, we don't glorify God. We think there's other things that will bring us more joy than God. And so we talked in the first sermon about God, through the gospel, restoring us back to a place where we can adore Him rightly. Nathan preached about learning from Jesus. Notice it's the what, the how, and the why. What do we do? We adore Jesus. How do we do it? We learn from Him. As we looked at Genesis 3 in the fall, we saw man intended, made for the purpose of adoring God, worshiping God, and another voice coming into the picture. A fallen angel. An angel who was also created to worship and adore God, but wanted worship and adoration for himself. And God will not share His glory with another. And so our enemy, Satan, God's enemy, tempts man, the object of God's affection, man, the pinnacle of God's creation, 
made in God's image for the purpose of being in relationship with God. But the relationship will only work if God is here and we're here. And Satan tempts man to to put himself on equal footing with God, and you know where that leads. Eventually, yeah, we get it all in reverse. God cannot have others posing as God in his kingdom. There's only room for one God, and he's it. We're not. And yet we are convinced because of our sin nature that we know best. So when we say learn from Jesus, that is the process of humbling ourselves before God and listening to what he has to teach us, to reveal to us first about himself. We live in a world, as Nathan aptly uh, taught last Sunday, of subjectivism, that you get to decide who God is. And so we make a God in our image. And then we say, now there's a God I can worship. Well, yeah, that's you. God's not like that at all. And we meet the God of the Bible and we're surrounded by people in our culture who say, well, I can't worship a God like that. I can't worship a God of justice. I can't worship a God who punishes. I can't worship a God who wants all the glory for himself. And yet God has revealed himself to us in such a way that we ought to fall on our knees and worship him. To see this God of love who cherishes us and would send his own son even to die in our place. This is a God we can learn from. This is a God we can trust. And yet again, when we go back to Genesis 3, we see man being tempted by the tempter to say, there is something better than God out there. The very thing that God said would bring death the tempter says, no, that will bring happiness. That'll bring satisfaction. God made it very black and white, very clear, very simple, very uncomplicated. Eat from this tree, you will die. Eat from this tree, you will die. Man was, at that point, had the ability to choose between right and wrong, to measure up the offer between God and the tempter, and to choose God. Pre-sin, and justified his choice by saying, well, look, it looks like it's beautiful and it's probably good for eating and it'll make me wise. It'll make me like God. Isn't that exactly what the enemy wants from us? To to want us to be like God, not in a good way, not being created in the image of Jesus Christ like the Bible teaches, but to be like God, meaning I get the prerogatives of God. I get to choose what's right and wrong. I choose good and evil. I choose what's best for me. I'll decide what makes me happy. Nobody has the right to tell me what makes me happy. I know what makes me happy, but my Creator has the right to tell me what will make me happy. And it turns out He is what will make me happy. And to be in relationship with Him means to learn from Him, trust Him, and love Him, to obey Him, trust His commandments that they'll lead to the greatest glory for God and the greatest good for all of us. So how or why do we learn from Jesus? What do we do? We adore Jesus. How? By learning from Him. Why? So that we can love like Him. And today we're going to look at how Jesus loves. Now, only people who adore Jesus would care to know how Jesus loves. And only people willing to submit to learning from Jesus can find out how he loves. So you see how adore, learn, and love are inextricably linked. Adorers of Jesus learn from Jesus so that they can love like Jesus. If you're not learning from Jesus, you're not adoring him. And if you're not learning from Jesus, you certainly can't love like him. And let me show you why. Let's find out what the world has to say about love. How does this world define love? So I went to the source of all truth, the internet, to dictionary.com. Clearly a trusted reference. Who even knows is writing this dictionary? You know, we just go on the internet and go, well, that must be the definition because it's on the internet and it says dictionary.com. So that's got to be the ultimate dictionary. 
And the first entry says, A, feeling. Oh, right there, I'm already lost. You, you lost me at feeling. How can love be a feeling? Because what happens if I don't feel like loving anymore? Well, you do what the world does. You just find someone else to love. Find something else to love. Love becomes arbitrary. We become a victim of our own emotions. A feeling of strong or constant affection for a person. Well, at least they put person in the definition. Entry number two. Okay, here we go. Attraction that includes sexual desire. At least they waited till the second entry. A little false modesty probably from the dictionary.com people. You know they wanted to put that as one, but somehow they knew that was wrong. Um, but it, it only took the second bullet point to get where people really want to go with love. That it's a romantic thing. Think about all of our songs, our movies, our books, romance novels, romantic comedies, this love, this feeling, this sexual desire for another. Cue the music. Buy her the ring. Have the, the wedding. And then a few weeks later, where did love go? Where is it? So that can't be the definition. Let's go back a hundred years to Webster's Dictionary. Now, this isn't Noah Webster's actual entry because he's older than this, right? Some of you know him personally. You were there when he was writing his dictionary. <laughs> so this is not his entry. They used his name on the dictionary but this is a hundred years after he wrote his actual dictionary. So uh, we have entry number one, a profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking here. We're getting a little, a little closer. But by entry number two, it's a feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection. I like, though, that at least they said, as for a parent, child, or friend, and then they move to the romance in entry number three. So that was even uh, early 1900s here. Go back another hundred years to the original Noah Webster's Dictionary of 1812. And that's just the first entry. So apparently, back in the day, we were much more sober-minded as a people. We thought more deeply about our definitions we defined things with accuracy, and especially when it came to love, you make sure you get it right. So let me read this to you in case your eyes betray you. You should see the font in my notes. Look at that. Okay. In a general sense, to be pleased with, to regard with affection on account of some qualities which excite pleasing sensations or desire of gratification. We love a friend on account of some qualities which give us pleasure in his society. We love a man who has done us a favor, in which case gratitude enters into the composition of our affection. We love our parents and our children on account of their connection with us and on account of many qualities which please us. We love to retire to a cool shade in summer. We love a warm room in winter. We love to hear an eloquent advocate. The Christian loves his Bible. In short, we love whatever gives us pleasure and delight, whether animal or intellectual. In other words, either something material or a philosophy or an idea. And if our hearts are right... We love God above all things as the sum of all excellence and all the attributes which can communicate happiness to intelligent beings. In other words, the Christian loves God with the love of complacency in his attributes. I bet you've never thought of complacency in positive terms. But if you're going to be complacent about something, be complacent in who God is. I'm satisfied. I don't need any more. I'm complacent in his attributes. The, also, the love of benevolence towards the interest of his kingdom. So we love what God loves. We love his agenda. 
We love His plan. We love what He's doing. We love what He's all about. That's the kind of of love because it brings us gratification. It, It brings us pleasure. I love to see a victory for Christ. I love to see a sinner repent. I love to see somebody get a theological concept they haven't gotten before. I love to see somebody choose love for others instead of love for self. These things, for the Christian, become the things that bring us the most joy and gratification. And then finally, a love of gratitude for favors received. You learn to love God for what He's done for us. But remember, in the Thanksgiving sermon, and as this, this definition um, also states, love Him first for who He is. And then, of course, love Him for what He has done. I was reading this definition to Nathan the other day, and he's like, like, I need a few hours just to like soak that in. Like, who writes like that anymore? It's like reading uh, Spurgeon or reading Jonathan Edwards. You read a sentence, and you have to put the book down and go, wow, that's a whole sermon. And there's another sentence right after that one that's a whole sermon. And those were theologically trained minds that, that could handle that kind of, of reading. So we have these resources as Christians now that we can go to when we want biblical definitions. The way you've been trained from this pulpit over the years to make definitions is first to use the right hermeneutic, you know, to say, um, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to accept it as truth, and I'm going to read it in a grammatical, literal, historical fashion. I'm not going to allegorize the Bible. From there, you take a biblical theology. I need to know the Bible cover to cover. I need to really understand God's message to me before I'm going to say anything authoritative about a subject like love. From there, you go to systematic theology, where you take each topic of the Bible and use your hermeneutic and your biblical theology to really define and draw out God's definition of that topic. Well, Good theologians have done this process for us, and these can be very wonderful helps. Um, It's a good starting point for your study. Try not to just fall into the habit of letting someone else, though, do all the study for you. But in our own library here at the church, we have many Bible dictionaries. One of my favorites is the Baker Theological Dictionary of the Bible. And um, they define love in this way. God does not merely love. God is love. Everything God does flows from his love. God the Father loves the Son. He made his will known to him. Jesus, in turn, demonstrated his love to the Father through his submission and obedience. The theme of the entire Bible is the self-revelation of the God of love. So God is love. He loves because he is love. It's a difficult philosophical concept. It's like saying God is good. Everything he does is good because he's good. It's not that he did something and then a higher authority said, well, now that's good. It's good because God did it. It's love because God is love. You want to know what love is? Look at God and see what he does. And it's difficult for us because we're material beings. We're spirit in material body, and God is spirit. And God, out of his love for us, sent Jesus in the flesh. So we as material beings would have an object of worship closer in nature to ourselves. And we want to know, well, how do we love? So we have Jesus' example, his life, to see what love looks like. And according to this definition, and I would agree, love submits to God. Love chooses God the Father. Love chooses to submit and obey and trust God. It says, Jesus, in turn, demonstrated his love to the Father through his submission and obedience. The theme of the entire Bible is the self-revelation of the God of love. So then, how does God love? Again, from the Baker Theological Dictionary. In the Garden of Eden, I'm like, yes, because that's right where I would go. You know, 
you know me by now. You've heard my preaching. We're, we're back in the garden because we want to know how things were from the beginning before everything went wrong. And we want to see why things went wrong. And we want to see what God's plan is for correcting the wrong. In the Garden of Eden, God commanded that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat of it, you will surely die. We're God's given man an opportunity to love, to demonstrate love. How will that demonstration look? That I trust you. I trust in your goodness. I trust in your authority. If you say this will kill me, then I trust you and I will stay away from it. Often the question is asked, why did God even put that tree in the garden? And theologians often answer, so that love would have an opportunity to demonstrate itself. If there was no choice, there's no love. And you hear the arguments about we would just be robots if we didn't have an opportunity to choose. And then that leads into a whole endless debate over ten cups of coffee over free will. But we're not going to go there yet. (laughs) we'll touch a little bit on it later. So, man had the opportunity to demonstrate his love to God through trusting God and choosing to obey his one command. We know how it turns out. He chooses love of self, chooses his own opinion over God's truth, falls into sin, breaks relationship with God. Notice that God was always in a loving relationship from all eternity. He didn't need man to have a love relationship. The Trinity had a perfect loving relationship for all eternity past and will for all eternity future. But God being loved, love desires relationship. God created man out of his desire to love. He has to love. It's who he is. It sounds strange to say God has to do anything, but if it's, if it's God has to do good, God has to tell the truth, God cannot lie, the Bible says, because he is truth. It can't come out of him. Anything that comes out of him is automatically truth. Anything that comes out of God is automatically love. Even the love that punishes is love. So we need God's definition of love instead of our own. I love this. See, there's another use of the word love. We are not prepared then when God looks for Adam after his sin, calling out, where are you? God seeks Adam not to put him to death. Not to put him to death. He's already separated from God. That is death. That is the eternal separation that Adam's sin caused. So yes, Adam and Eve experienced death separation immediately. They were in shame. They hid themselves from God. They tried to hide themselves from one another with fig leaves. God did not put their bodies literally to death immediately. He seeks Adam, not to put him to death, but to reestablish a relationship with him. God the lover will not allow sin to stand between him and his creature. See, knowing that man can't work his way back to God, he personally chooses to bridge the gap. Love chooses. Love chooses. Love chooses relationship and is willing to do whatever it takes to restore relationship. In God's case, even if that means giving his own life. Giving his own life. Ironically, man chose death thinking it would bring life. Jesus chose death on our behalf knowing it would bring eternal life. Man chose what he thought would bring life but actually brought death. The second Adam chose what he knew would bring death, however would eventually bring eternal life. How does God love? That seeking and bridging reaches at the pinnacle when God sends His Son into the world to rescue sinners and to provide them with eternal life. And then I added in parentheses, I wanted to put our sanctification in there. God continues to love us in our sanctification. He indwells us 
by His Spirit. He takes up dwelling inside of us. That is love. We talk about the humility of God to come down and be born in a manger as a baby, but to take up dwelling inside sinners. Well, first, He makes us righteous through the righteousness of Christ, and then we're now fit for the indwelling of God Himself in the third person of of the Trinity. By His Spirit, then, He provides us the power to reverse the effects of the fall and begin the process of restoring the believer back to the original pre-fall relationship man had with God. So the whole ALL starts going in reverse now as a believer. I now have the capacity to love God and love others. And I can only do that by learning from God. And I'll only learn from God if I adore God and worship God. The fall sent everything downhill and Jesus is reversing the curse, reversing the fall. How does Jesus love? Jesus then serves as the believer's model. We have an actual person like us in every way except that he didn't give in to temptation, that he is without sin. 100% man, we have a model to follow. John declares, this is how we know what love is. Oh, good, we're getting a definition here, a biblical definition. What is love, God? Tell me what love is so I know. Dictionary.com, I don't trust. Noah Webster, I trust a little bit more because he was a man saturated in the Word of God and a man of faith. But if I really want to go to the ultimate source and know I won't be let down and the answer won't be tainted at all by human opinion, go to the Bible. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. Love chooses to sacrifice for the good of others. Selfish, self-seeking love chooses self. God's kind of love chooses others. Love sacrifices for the sake of the relationship. Love pursues, not based on the merit of the recipient. Love isn't looking for somebody worthy of being loved. Love isn't looking for someone worthy to be pursued. God's love, God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the unlovable. That is the kind of love Jesus wants us to love with. And you should immediately be saying, I can't do that. You're right. We can't do that. We know how to love. It's not that we don't know how to love. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know how to love. I know how to love. I only really know how to love self. I'm really good at it. I practice it every day. I'm an expert in self-love. I don't need to be taught to love because love is basically just desiring and choosing and preferring that which you think will bring you the most amount of good or pleasure. My sin nature is convinced that choosing self will bring me the greatest amount of good, love, and pleasure. And when the things my flesh chooses are in opposition to what God has told me I should choose, my sin nature will choose self every time. I know better than God. How dare God tell me what will make me happy? I know what will make me happy. I do this, the good feelings come, there we go. See, I know how this works. And God says, no, that's eventually going to bring death and misery. Listen to me, I'm your creator. I love you. I know what's best for you. So how do we love? So the Webster's Dictionary at least got this part right. Remember, it said, in a general sense, to be pleased with, to regard with affection on account of some qualities which excite pleasing sensations or desire of gratification. On a human level... We choose or we love whatever we think is going to bring us pleasing sensations or uh, complete that desire for gratification. 
We tend to love or prefer that which we think will bring pleasure or that which we believe will meet our desires for gratification. To be human is to love. To be human is to choose. To be human is to prefer. So get out of your mind these notions of romance and that electricity, that chemistry, that whatever, that elusive whatever that you had when you were in love. The reason you felt those feelings was because you thought that person could deliver happiness. You thought they were going to spend the rest of their life meeting your every need and whim because they were making themselves as attractive to you as they possibly could during the chase. After the chase, the game changes. We all know that. We've experienced that. We're guilty of it. Love on autopilot will just seek after what's going to bring me the greatest amount of happiness. And as uh, one singer said, I can't get no satisfaction. Well, because you're loving the wrong things. You're chasing after the wrong things, the things that don't satisfy. So here's the big question, though, about love and why it gets wrapped up with this concept of free will. Are we free to love that which will objectively bring us the most good or pleasure, which is called libertarian freedom? Can we objectively look at choice A, choice B, consider all the facts, and then make the choice that will actually bring us the most amount of good? Or are we only free, quote-unquote, air quotes, to love that which we naturally crave, or in other words, are inclined toward, or in modern terms, oriented towards, right? Hey, that's just my orientation. Can't help it. That's the only thing that's going to bring me happiness is I'm oriented towards that. This is what's being taught to our kids in our schools, in our culture, in our movies, in our books. You thought Free Willy was about a whale. Oops, sorry kids. Free Willy's a propaganda movie teaching you free will. The poor whale is trapped in an aquarium by man and he's not free to make his own choices and swim where he wants to swim and do what he wants to do. We've got to free the will. We've got to free the will. Nobody's going to a movie called Free the Will, but I'll go to a movie about a cute whale. You know, but this is what Free Willy is really about. Oh, man, he's ruining another movie from the pulpit. No, I'm trying to instruct and inform the flock that you are being taught. We are saturated in the false teaching of the tempter. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he runs the world system and the world's philosophies. And what does the New Testament warn us against more than anything else? False teaching, false philosophies. Are our wills actually free, or do we have inclination, freedom of inclination? The Bible teaches us we have freedom of inclination. We are free to choose whatever we are inclined to think will bring me the most pleasure, even if, objectively speaking, that thing will not bring us the most pleasure. And ultimately, when we look in the garden, God's saying, not only will that choice not bring you pleasure, it will bring death. And because we've inherited this sin nature from Adam and Eve, we are inclined to choose death, misery, broken relationship. We choose self and selfishness. How you answer this question will determine then how you reveal the stumbling block. The world thinks that the stumbling block is lack of education. Ignorance is why people are choosing the wrong thing. No, the problem is all the way to the core. The heart's the problem. The heart's been tainted by sin and is inclined away from God and away from learning from God and away from adoring God and it's inclined towards self-will, self-love, self-learning, self-revelation, self, 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 self. Self. Right. 
I don't know if this building's still open, but you go into Golden Hills and there's the Self-Awareness Center. People are there to find themselves. I found myself in here and it's ugly. But praise God through my faith in Christ that I'm a new new creature now, a new creation in Christ. I now have a heart inclined back to God. Yes, still trapped in this body of flesh. I have my Romans 7 moments every day. The very thing that I want, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. Who will liberate me from this bondage? Oh, wretched man that I am. Praise be to God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I can be liberated. I can now choose where Adam didn't choose. Because the last Adam chose wisely. And he's my example, my model. He's my champion. He paid the price on the cross for me so I don't have to pay it. And now the very power that raised him from the dead is working in me to be able to choose to love, to love, to prefer God, to prefer others. Do I do it perfectly? No. No, that is our message to the world. But I now have the capacity to do it. And when I'm glorified, I will choose perfectly all the time. The Bible teaches that our sin nature compels us to love that which our natural senses think will bring us the most good pleasure or happiness. This is freedom of inclination, and Martin Luther called it the bondage of the will. He called it bondage instead of freedom because our sin nature will not choose God. Yes, we're free to choose. We have free will. It's just we're free to choose wrongly all the time. So is that really freedom? No, Martin Luther called it bondage. If we're only free in our sin nature to choose that which will bring death and unhappiness, then that's not freedom at all. So we're really not free. And Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Real freedom, true freedom. Not the kind of freedom this world's offering. This escape from reason, this escape from reality, escape from God Be your own God. Do your own choosing. Create your own reality. Create your own God. That's not freedom at all, to live in a fantasy world of lies. It's just that when we come to the truth, our sin nature is opposed to truth because we don't look very good in this story. God's the hero. And yet if we keep reading the story, we see that through Christ... We can become children of God, co-heirs with Christ. Again, from the Baker Bible Dictionary, we are totally incapable of loving either God or others, a condition that must be corrected by God before we can love. And I would add, love rightly. Again, we already love, we just, our love apparatus is damaged. Our love compass is oriented due south, and it needs to be oriented due north towards Jesus. The Bible's ways of describing this process are numerous, in, uh, including circumcision of the heart. The people of God would circumcise themselves to tell the world that we're God's people. And God says, you know what you need? A circumcised heart. God needs to write His laws on our hearts. God needs to substitute our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. By the way, in this context, flesh is a good thing. A fleshly heart is a teachable heart, a humble heart, a heart ready to learn from Jesus. Or being born again by the Spirit, Jesus' very own words in John chapter 3, and moving out of darkness into light. Many other metaphors the Bible uses for this process of God changing us from the inside out. Until this happens, we cannot love correctly. So then what's the stumbling blocks to love? The writer goes on to say, Our love, however, is easily misdirected. Its object tends to be the creation rather than the creator. It loses sight of eternal for the temporal, right? We're a society of instant gratification. We want heaven on earth instead of heaven in heaven. We want our best life now instead of our best life later. We become idolaters. 
We focus on self, often to the exclusion of God and others. We become idolaters, focusing a part or all of our love elsewhere. We are, I love this, love breakers more than we are law breakers. That is God's chief indictment against us. We love the wrong person. If the greatest commandments are to love God and love others, then indeed we are lawbreakers. We're breaking the law of love. So what's the solution? Well, you know the solution. It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ. We will always love according to freedom of inclination. The gospel reorients our hearts back in the right direction. We'll just be inclined to choose God instead of self. Let's get out of our heads this concept of libertarian freedom. Our hearts love, our hearts choose, our our hearts prefer based on what we think will bring us the greatest amount of pleasure. Well, the answer is God will bring us the greatest amount of pleasure. When our hearts and minds are convinced of this, and God will change our heart through faith. Yeah, okay, okay, I'm getting it. God is the greatest source of pleasure. I've tried pleasing myself. It doesn't work. I'm always miserable. Have you noticed the most miserable people in this world are those who are seeking their own happiness all the time? It's counterintuitive. Well, how am I going to be happy if I stop focusing on my own happiness? Trust God. When you're concerned with God's glory and the good of others, happiness sneaks in the back door. Hey, don't look now, but Cranky Pants is happy. (laughs) Well, how could that be? I wasn't really focused on my happiness. Bingo. Bingo. That's that's the answer. Well, I don't get it, though, because this other stuff brings me happiness. No, it doesn't. It brings you misery. I know you. You're miserable. I love you. I'm not going to leave you there. Choose God. Choose what God says will bring you life and happiness. Don't try to figure it out. Just trust God. It works. He knows. He created us. But I don't want to. Aha! There you go. That's your sin nature. Repent at the foot of the cross. Not only did Jesus, again, die for your sins, He paid that punishment, that death, But the power that raised him from the dead will work in you to incline your heart to choose. It doesn't happen overnight, although at the moment of conversion, many of the things we used to choose get changed right away. But there's always those residuals, right? And you know what yours are. And if you don't, ask your spouse, ask your kids, your best friends. They know. And the cross also gives us the grace, the grace to know I'm probably going to mess this up again, aren't I, God? Yes, you are, but I still love you because I chose to love you before you were even trying. When your heart was far from me and it was inclined toward self, God saved you. God chose to love you. If he loves with that kind of love, then we have, we have the promise, we have the hope we have the power to say, I, I can do this in my sanctification with God's help. I can start saying no to the things that I used to think would bring me happiness. I can say yes to Jesus. Retrain my mind, Jesus. I am sitting in your classroom. I'm learning from you. Teach me to adore you instead of adore self. Teach me to love you and love others. And when that self-love sneaks back in, the grace of the cross, all right, is a louder voice than the voice of the tempter who's saying, see, you're worthless. You can't do this. You could say, that's right, I can't in my own strength, but I have the power of God that raised him from the dead working in me. So I will choose God. I will choose to love others. And yeah, I'll probably stumble, but God will pick me up by His grace, and I will continue on the right path. And someday, when Jesus returns or calls me home, 
I will perfectly choose and perfectly love for all eternity. We look at Jesus and we see that the last Adam, Jesus, chose correctly. He chose everything the first Adam did not choose. In the wilderness, when he was tempted by the tempter, he said, no, you shall love the Lord your God and Him alone. I will choose to adore God. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I will choose to learn from God. Jesus, fall down and worship me, and I will give you all these things. Now, Jesus knew all those things were going to be his anyways, but only according to God's plan, not the shortcut plan. Not eating from the tree, so to speak. He's going to choose to love God. Where the first Adam did not adore, learn, and love, the second Adam, the last Adam, chose to adore, learn, and love. And we see the last Adam in another garden. Instead of the Garden of Eden, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. He had a choice. Will I love the Father and submit to the Father, and will I love other people by going to the cross for them? And he had an inclination to say, I really don't want to do this, Father, if there's any other way. If you could take this cup from me, if there's any other way. But his heart is inclined to God the Father first and to loving others. Not my will be done, but your will be done. There's our model. There's our example. He did it perfectly for us. So now we're free to start making the right choices. If we do it out of libertarian freedom, then who gets the credit? We do. Do you see how that works? If free will works that way, if we all have freedom, libertarian freedom, then if I choose correctly, I'm just better than you. I'm better than y'all. Hey, sorry about all those people going to hell. They chose poorly. Look at, look at me. I chose, I chose wisely. No, God re-inclined my heart through the gift of faith to choose Him. So the last Adam chose to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love others. And that is what we're called to do. To love like Jesus then means to obey. And if I started with this, then people would have left. But I hope you're convinced now that loving like Jesus means to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He said that the greatest commandments then were to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gives New Testament believers a new command. In John 15, 12, he says, This is my command, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. He's saying that what will bring us the greatest joy and happiness and satisfaction is to lay down our lives for one another. I know that is so counterintuitive. That does not make any sense on the surface. So I'm going to have all my needs met by meeting other people's needs. Well, not the needs you think you need met, but your greatest needs will be be met. You were built to love, and God is retraining our hearts, hearts how to love correctly. Again, we're all experts at loving self. Now we have to learn to love others in the same way we love ourselves. Love involves trust. When we know God for who He really is and choose to adore Him for His perfections and thank Him for His gifts, we then cultivate a heart ready to love Him by obeying His commands. I I, I want to do this. I can do this. I can trust this God. He loves me. He sent His Son to die for me. If he says this is what's going to be best for me, I can say no to my flesh that is screaming out at me right now. No, do this. This will bring you happiness. No, I'm not listening to that voice anymore. God has given me the power to listen to his voice. 
And little by little, as you cultivate that kind of heart, making those choices starts to become first nature instead of second nature. And people notice the growth in you, and they call it spiritual maturity. And they say, wow, look at this guy now. Where did that come from? Where did the joy come from? Where did that kind of servant's heart come from? God gets all the credit. When we cultivate a heart ready to love Him by obeying His commands, trusting that this will bring us the greatest joy, then then we adore, learn, and love. And you see how they're inextricably linked. You can't adore God if you don't love Him. And the problem is, I don't love Him. So I need God to teach me to love so I can adore Him and learn from Him. And the more I adore Him and the more I'm learning from Him, the more I will love Him and love like Him. And the more I love Him and love like Him, the more I will adore Him and want to learn from Him. And the cycle starts going in the right direction. And that's progressive sanctification. Adore, learn, and love is the Christian life in a nutshell. Apart from God, the cycle's going the wrong way. I'm practicing loving self. If I'm loving self, I can't adore God. If I'm not adoring God, I won't learn from Him. If I'm not learning from Him, I'll continue to love self until I'm an expert. Until there's a permanent chair for me at the University of Self-Love. And when I walk around this earth practicing and teaching self-love... I create disciples, and that's sad. But when I learn to adore, learn, and love correctly, I make the right kind of disciples around me. So then here's here's our strategy as a church. Jesus loved the Father by trusting Him and obeying His commands. He loved others by meeting their immediate needs. We see Jesus healing and feeding, loving people where their immediate needs are are so that he could eventually meet their eternal needs of salvation. But meeting their internal needs of salvation always entails showing them, speaking truth and love, where they're missing the mark. That they're self-lovers, self-worshippers, self-learners, and that they've got to repent from that and trust in Christ. If you had to do that in your own strength, you wouldn't want to do it. That's an uncomfortable task. But when you grab hold of what Christ has done for you and in you, you can't wait to go tell other people about how to adore, learn, and love. At COBC, then, we will endeavor to love like Jesus by meeting people's immediate needs. I think we're doing a really good job of this physical and emotional, whether they come in to meet the deacons and they they need a bill paid, or they're coming to, to grief share because they're emotionally grieving. All the other ministries that we have, I got to go to the, the grief share closing, and I love how Ruthie meets their emotional needs, but then she lets them know what their real needs are. You know? I'm not... We're not just here to have a shoulder to cry, and we're here to bring wholeness and wellness, make adores of Christ, because that's going to meet your ultimate need. So that is what we're attempting to do here at the church. If we just cut a check to pay someone's electricity and sent them out the door, what good would we be doing them? But by the same token, if we just came in and we said, well, sorry they're turning your power off, be warm and be fed, Jesus loves you, that's, that's not love either. Chronicle through your mind the way Jesus loved people. The woman at the well, John chapter 4, right? What did she need? She was lonely. She was at the well all by herself. She couldn't go in the morning because the other women wouldn't have her there. Well, she was in an adulterous relationship. And they didn't want to be around an adulterer. So Jesus breaks through all the customs of the day and meets her at the well and meets her physical need. Somebody loves me. Somebody's talking to me. Somebody cares about me. But he doesn't just leave her there. And Jesus, being omniscient, knows exactly what's at the root of her problems. And goes on to tell her, 
She says, well, the man I'm living with. He's like, oh, yeah, this is the fifth, and he's not your husband either. And she's like, oh, he knows, but he's still talking to me. This is new. This is different. This is love. And he says, you need to worship God. And she's like, I can't because, you know, my people have to worship on this mountain, and, and, but the temple's over here. And he's like, no, no excuses for worship. A time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Think of the paralytic at the pool. You got the woman at the well, the paralytic at the pool. What did he need? He, he, he thought he needed physical healing. But Jesus knew better. The guy was, had an idol of comfort in his life. An idol of comfort. And Jesus said, Do you want to be healed? That's a hard question to ask someone. It almost sounds unloving, but it's the most loving thing Jesus could ask him right there. Do you even want to be healed? I think you like sitting at this pool. I think you've gotten comfortable in it. He says, do you want to be healed? And does the guy say yes or no? No, he says, well, I'm trying to get healed, but i got to get in the pool first when the angel gets there and stirs the water, but I don't have anyone to carry me down. Uh-uh, uh-uh. It's not what I asked. Do you want to be healed? Do you know what healing will mean? Do you know what that there's a better life waiting for you than sitting here as this helpless victim. Yeah. What about the rich young ruler? He said he wanted heaven, except he wanted someone to just tell him you've already merited heaven through your own righteousness. And so his need got met immediately. The guy had no physical needs. He was one of those uh, self-styled independent guys. You know, I don't need anybody. So Jesus has to hit him right where it hurts the most, out of love. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And he went away sad because he had a lot of money. So this is the way Jesus loves. It's different than the way the world loves. The world doesn't want to offend people. And yet the cross is always an offense. It's a stumbling block to the pride of humanity. And yet we know that on the other side of that pride is great freedom. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's end with a passage from Ephesians here. Hat tip to my wife. She pointed this one out to me, my helper. When Paul talks about how we ought to live as Christians, he uses the metaphor of walk. Because everyone walked everywhere. I guess if he wrote the Bible in these days, he'd say, drive. Drive in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been. (laughs) So this walk, a metaphor for life. In Ephesians 4, after three chapters of all this brilliant theology about who God is, what He's done for us in Christ and all the spiritual blessings waiting for us in heaven that are really ours now and the Holy Spirit's given us a down payment that we were once far away from God but now we're close and God is doing more, exceedingly more than you can even think to ask. Then He says, walk worthy of this calling. That is a call to adoration. Adore this Jesus I've just spent three chapters telling you about. Walk worthy. That's how you will adore Him. Walk worthy of the calling. Then he goes on to say, Walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him, and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. This is the learning from Jesus. How do I walk worthy, Paul? How do I adore Jesus? By learning from Jesus. So that, so that, Ephesians 5, 1-2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That sacrificial love God is calling us to. Adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we can love 
like Jesus. Apparently, God beat me to the punch. The mission statement was already written. There it is in Ephesians. Good to know our church mission statement is the Bible's mission statement. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you lay it all out for us. Everything we need to know for life and godliness. You've provided everything in Christ we need. You've provided for the things we didn't even know we needed. You've even told us in our word the things we should need. Now may we accept it by faith that you would do a work in our hearts, incline our hearts to you, that we would focus on you, you'd be the object of our adoration, that we'd learn from you when tempted to learn from self and false teachers, that we would learn from the great teacher, the great rabbi, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, God incarnate truth in the flesh, the Word made flesh. And that we would now love you and love others properly. Incline our hearts towards you and to our fellow man. Not letting our own pride and our own fear and our own self-preservation standing in the way. And that this process of adoring, learning, and loving would spill out of this church into our community and around the world, that others would be all about Jesus as well. May Christmas morning, may all the presents and all the stockings and all the cute little Christmas jingles fade into the background and Jesus be forefront in our homes. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you and Merry Christmas and I'll see you Christmas Eve.